when I start with a nice word on Parshas Vuairu. The Zerakoidish on the Pusik Haimbana is Rolo Shomi alive, Aichish Maini Paroi, Vanir Alsfa Soim. See, he has all Arichas. He talks about the fact that uh, in Gulas Mitzrayim, you know, the Dibber was in Gulas. The Sur don't talk about that. Rizal talks about it. The Dibber was in Gulas. Eden weren't able to daven the way they should daven. They weren't able to talk to Hashem the way they should. And they, that, was, that was part of the Gulas Mitzrayim. That's why it was so hard. But we find that, uh, you know, Hashem definitely listened to the Tfilis. Right? We see that, uh, you know, Vatal Shavusim Alelakim and Havoida. We find that Hashem did answer their tefillahs. And he goes to all arichas that even when a person can't dive into Hashem, and even when he feels that he doesn't have what it takes to have his tefillahs answered, either because he's not zoich, or that he doesn't know how to express himself right, or he doesn't feel that he's davening in the right way. But Hashem knows how to listen to that Yiddish Hashem knows how to, to hear what a person wants to say. And Hashem could accept that as well. And that's why Hashem says, The naka, the cry, they're not saying anything, they're not davening properly, but, but even just... Even though they're so far, they're crying that they're far, they're crying out to Hashem that he should, he should be close to them and listen to them, and that alone is also good. So we don't realize sometimes that even when we don't feel that we're worthy maybe, or we don't, have, we don't know how to say it, but just talking to Hashem and asking Him to help is, is something that we learned from Gulas Mitzrayim. And it worked, it worked. Eden weren't, Eden weren't necessarily unworthy, and they didn't know how to daven, and, and it worked, and they came out of Mitzrayim. Interesting, we, we find that, you know, why, why, why did not come out of Mitzrayim? So by, by the Agudah Shapaisach, we say, because Hashem promised Avram Avini, right? That's, that's one way to understand why we came out of Mitzrayim. Another way, we find the Shchism, the Shini Yas L'Shoinam, Abisham, Shmom, we find the other Shchism eating that. But in the Pusik, it says one thing, they came out of Mitzrayim because Hashem heard their cry. And we find that that's always something that we're always able to do. Turn to Hashem and dive into Hashem in the Agudah Shapaisach, from Tfeiras Bunim, from the Dark Achiever. So I saw brought down, he's a more good thing. He says, Shemati mitzadik eichot she'usin nefluus imofsin pul yishiyas li yisrul. There was a tzadik who was able to accomplish oisis imofsin, a more good pul yishiyas. The choshdi oisis she'usin ashbuiz b'shaymas haglayshim. People thought that maybe he's doing ashbuiz, maybe he's using shaymas to be able to accomplish these amazing things. They were choshed that he's using koiches that he shouldn't be using. And he said, Chaz v'shulam lasas ma she'usin. He said, I would never do such a thing. The only thing I do is ask Hashem and I beg Hashem and I keep on davening until Hashem gives me what I, what, I, what I ask for. And when I talk to people and I hear people telling me about certain things that they were able to accomplish, just because they daven to Hashem, it's always so inspiring and comforting to know that, yeah, that, that's what we do. And one of the places that this is most relevant is when it comes to children. There's actually very little tefillahs, very little, very, very few tefillahs that in the side of the where we are daven for our children. Very few. I know some people point out in the Bech Satoira and here and there, but very few. There are very few um, places in davening, uh, you know, proportionately that, you know, for the importance of, of what we're looking for, nachas from the children. There's something that we should, we should be davening every bruch and davening. We should be healthy now. Our children should be healthy. We should have pranus. We should be able to help our children grow. We should have good children. You know, almost don't daven for them in the side of that filler. A lot of different reasons for it. One of the reasons I once heard was because everyone's anyway davening 24-7 for children. Chazal set up a filler that we have to daven for certain things we might forget about sometimes. But for children, it's something we have to keep on davening for. And so many times when people ask questions about children, the first thing we have to remember is keep on davening. Keep on davening, and that's what works best. Of course, we have to be responsible, do what we could, and be mashkiyah the koiches, and invest whatever energy, and whatever creativity, whatever, whatever insight and wisdom we have. But it's all together with, and, and, and only, only before and after, cushioned by a lot of davening to Hashem, you know, that everything we try to do should take effect, and, and work, and bring out the best of every one of our children, with Hashem's help. So with that, let me... Read uh, a little letter over here. Oh, 
There I grow. I'm currently in the middle of your course. Okay, this is going back a while. Actually, the course is now running again, but... Okay, and hoping to gain clarity and guidance on how to handle my sensitive child and create a more positive and happy atmosphere in our home. I have a question on a different note, which has been bothering me for a very long time. I hope you can give me some insight on this matter. My five-and-a-half-year-old daughter, definitely a sensitive child, was our only child up until a few weeks ago when she was joined by her new baby sister. She's Kanainahara, a very lively, fun-loving, smart little girl. Being our oldest and born three years after we got married, my husband was always extremely overprotective in every aspect. I believe it's a combination of her personality as well. However, I feel she is super attached to him as a result of him hovering over her and being so on top of her all these years. She has a hard time letting go at a family event or gathering, even even in the company of people she is so familiar with. Each and every time we visit our parents, her grandparents, she's so nervous to let go and needs to be held by Tati. After a little while, she warms up, but we go through the adjustment period each and every time anew. She would never agree to stay over at our grandmother's house, even for a short little stay, since she's so attached to us. This makes things very difficult for me as her mother if I need to leave someplace, if I need to leave her someplace for a short time. On a family get-together at a park, she has a hard time letting go and allowing herself to spend time with other cousins. While all the other children of her age group are running around and enjoying happily, she would be tagging and not letting go of her father. I believe as well, I believe that my life as well as my daughter's life will be so much easier if we'd be more easygoing and happy-go-lucky. If she would be more easygoing and happy-go-lucky. It pains me to watch my child be so intense and uncomfortable in social settings and having difficulty adjusting each time over and over again in the presence of her own family members. These are relatives she's known, she knows since she's born. I understand it must be a personality and nature. However, I also believe that it's a result of how she was always handled and treated. What can I do as her mother to help her loosen up and be more easygoing and not so attached? Thank you. Okay. So, just by way of introduction, because you mentioned that you're taking my course and talk, and learning about sensitivity in children, and something I write about in my book. Um, yeah, so much about this child, as you mentioned, but I'm just saying it again, so much of this child and every child has to do with understanding their personality. So often there's a, it, what seems to be an unrelated issue, or related to something else, I should say, whether it's Tati, or, or being a single child, or whatever it is, when you understand the child's personality, you have so much more insight into how to help this child grow, and maybe by the time I'm addressing this, you already learned more about this, and you're able to boost her. It's not a question of sensitive children need a lot of boosting and a lot of um, emotional comfort and some healthy boundaries, which is probably something you also heard me talk about in my, in my course on this. And, and very often, just treating a child the right way brings out the best of them in other areas which, which uh, aren't necessarily directly connected to what, to what you're doing with them. What I do want to make sure is that you don't have an agenda or a goal of changing this child. So often when parents learn about children's natures, whether it's, oh, my kid's so flippant and happy-go-lucky and, and sloppy and living, living in the present and fun-loving and, and, and just, well, when, how can I get it to be more serious? Now, there are things you could do to make a child a little more serious, but if your goal is to change his nature, then, then you, you, both you're going to be disappointed that you won't get there, you won't be able to change a child's nature, and he's going to be disappointed that he's being looked down at because he's going to feel that you're not happy with who he is. And the same is with a sensitive child. Just make sure in your own mind that your goal is not that he shouldn't be a sensitive child. Now you could do whatever you could do to make him or her feel more comfortable, automatically tolerate more. There's a lot of things you could do. But when your goal is, when am I going to get this child to be like the other kids? Both the child will feel the disapproval and both you're going to get disappointed over time because it's not going to happen. Of course, when you, again, when you treat a child the right way, they will be able to tolerate more, which essentially means they'll be less sensitive. But their nature is not changing, and that's something that, it's a, it's a, a bigger discussion, uh, but that's something I want to 
talk about now. One thing that I'm very sensitive to, I'm sensitive to a lot of things, one of the things that I pick up very quickly, and some people listening to this, if they're listening to me long enough, probably do as well, is where, is where Chinech HaShalom Bayez start becoming an issue. Um, I've, I've no reason to assume so, but I'm considering that maybe your husband would have a very different take on this question. I don't know. I'm just mentioning it just in case. Does he also, does he agree with you, first of all, that he's as overprotective um, about this child as you think he is? Yes or no? Something to think about. If not, could it be that his opinion is also worth hearing, his perspective, understanding that he might be seeing it differently, might be seeing it as what he calls normal, you call overprotective, what you call overprotective, he's that, you know, these are things that you have to, what you call normal, he might see as careless, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's just important to remember, first of all, that there's always um, two perspectives, first of all. And even when there aren't two perspectives, it's almost never the case, but even when it isn't, turning this child and the chinuch of this child and the success of this child into a sore point where you and your husband are not getting along and having issues and arguments before you go to a family event and after you come home from a family event, it's something to be very, very careful about. It's a shame. It's a shame to let these two things mix. You want to understand how to help your child? Go ahead. But if this is going to become something like, you see, I knew you're doing the wrong thing. First of all, who said he's doing the wrong thing? I only heard what you're saying. Even if I would agree that, he, that what, the way you're describing it is doing the wrong thing, he might see it differently. And even if I agree with you and we are looking at the same thing, it's still not a reason to use this against anyone and to challenge Yeshua bias by this. That's one point. Another, another point, many of the Indian, very related is again, you know, I, I hate saying it, and only because I don't know who you are anyway, it's easier for me to say it. Sometimes we don't realize how much we're jealous of a spouse. Now, I don't know if this has anything to do with your situation, but if just in case you feel that, wow, um, she wants to be held by Tati and not by Mommy, for example, or maybe she has a better relationship with your husband, which you might not consider a better relationship, but maybe it's unhealthy or it's not the way it should be, but at the end of the day, she is clinging to him more than to you, and it bothers you that part as well, it's just something to be aware of that, oh yeah, that's also something that bothers me. Aside from the overprotective part, and aside from the fact that I don't agree in the parenting method, I'll admit that it bothers me. And automatically it might just be distorting my perspective and making me see things differently. And if only he would just let go of her, then she would be more connected with me as well. It's something to think about. It doesn't mean that, that, that the jealousy is unfounded and there's no reason for it. And it doesn't mean it's not allowed to bother you. It doesn't mean that you're wrong. It doesn't mean that you're seeing the, the, the wrong picture. But it's something to think about. And very often spouses don't realize how when it comes to certain children, sometimes it's naturally, sometimes it's not naturally, but some kids are more attracted to one than the other. And, and often, you know, we, we wish we could always have whatever our spouse has, whether it's the qualities or the simchasachayim or the connection and relationship with children. Either we can learn from them and figure out what they're doing right, that a child loves them more, or just understand that some children are naturally attached to one more than the other. It's just something to think about, and I wanted to point it out. Now, Let's get to the issue at hand, which is the overprotective part. There are children that are definitely slow adapters, and it takes them longer than other children, and there are children that are on the end of the line with this. In other words, it could be by a five-year-old. Most five-year-olds are playing happily, and some are not. In some cases, I don't know, but in some cases, just being patient and letting a child outgrow a certain difficulty is very often the way to go. And, and I always give the example of the child that's sitting on the table. Right? It's not gishmak to find your three-year-old on the table. And you're allowed to tell him to get off, and you're even allowed to give him a patch if that's what you told him you'll do, and it's not out of anger, and he'll understand it. No problem. I get it. It's important for you to remember when you're watching the child on the table that's getting you frustrated, chances are when he'll be 11 years old, he won't be on the table. I, I never heard of an 11-year-old dancing on the table. So 
you know, I'm not saying that you have to just let him be there. I'm not saying you shouldn't do anything about it. But just remember, this is, this is a temporary problem. And very often with a lot of um, these things, this is temporary. So a child that's very sensitive, growing up without siblings, and is still only five years old, it could be it's only temporary and you don't have to panic. It doesn't mean you shouldn't start being mechanic and encouraging and figuring out ways to make it better, but I've seen many people with younger children like this, whether it was like a slight uh, selective mutism or other such uh, antisocial tendencies, and over time they grow out of it. It's, it's still relatively normal, and I think that you might want to discuss this with somebody who could, whether a teacher or somebody who could help you understand if what you're seeing is right, and maybe it's, it's relatively normal. She could be the lower 20% of whatever spectrum is considered normal, but as long as it's not out of the ordinary or something totally out of bounds, sometimes you just wanna you just wanna wait it out. Uh, we would all wish our children would be on top of the line when it comes to any any topic, but you know th- there are children that are later and slower in certain areas, and sometimes it's not even so out of bounds like we think. As much as we don't want a child to be a little less uh, social and things like that. So I, again, I have no idea what the situation really does look like. I don't know how long it takes for it to warm up. I don't know how many other kids it would also take that long to warm up. I'm usually dealing with adults, not with little kids. I leave that to my wife, but uh, you have to just make sure that what you're seeing is taka as problematic as you think it is before deciding that there's something that you have to do something about. That's first of all. It is true, though, that no extremes are good, which means, obviously, a, ch- a child that doesn't feel cared for at all, or a child that's pushed, you know, go play with your friends, I don't want you to be near me, that's, that's, that's obviously a problem especially with sensitive children, they have to feel cared for. I'll never forget, I was talking to Ingaman, he was already a few years after his chasna. And, you know, I often hear people talking about their past and the upbringing and blaming the parents and, and, and a lot of pain and things they would, went through, you know. Again, always has, it's a topic of its own, how much you should look, should look back and how much you want to blame on your parents, how much you want to understand your parents. And, but the way he was describing a certain scenario, he was talking about a situation where he was maybe six, seven, little boy, he was playing outside in shul, outside in the courtyard, and somebody was fighting with him or bullying him, and he came in to cry to his father. His father didn't even blink. didn't even blink. Oh, someone hurt you, okay? He didn't even blink. He didn't, he didn't give him a hug. He didn't comfort him. He didn't tell him to go back to play. He didn't have him to, who, who was it? Nothing. The, the amount of pain that he was expressing it with 15 years later, it was, it was a chiddush to me to hear it expressed that way. A, a, a specific incident. Now, I'm not saying that he wasn't overreacting, He's obviously it was very sensitive, and that's the way he was. He was uh, that the way it, it, it uh, settled into his mind, let's call it. Uh, but the idea that some kids feel sometimes not protected at all, even though it could be most kids his age, wouldn't have reacted that way, and certainly wouldn't have remembered it uh, twenty years later. My point is that that extreme of go out there and do it, and you push the kid, and they get more comfortable. That's obviously not good. On the other hand, being overprotective and not letting a kid adapt, and always cushioning the kid, and always changing your schedule to accommodate the kid, and, and to not go sit with the adults because your kid still wants to stand near you, and to, not, um, let, and, and to not take a job because your kid is not comfortable going on the school bus, and always driving your child, and never going away on vacation because your child can't go anywhere, that's also no good. That's also no good. So, I, I only got to this now because you do want to make sure that this is not a shown bias issue. You also want to make sure that you're not misinterpreting the issue. But it is clear that there are times that this is a big issue. Being overprotective of a child sometimes doesn't allow the child to adapt. I've seen many children that are limited, both with their tolerance level um, in general, and specifically in, in their functioning properly and growing and, and adapting because, because it's being enabled and, and they're not given the, the chance to go out there and fend for themselves. 
So this is an issue. Um, the, the way to do it though, and this is the tricky part sometimes, when, when you feel your child should be pushed forward and you and your husband agree on how it should happen or you're discussing with somebody who's going to guide you, you know, to what's normal and what's not normal. The way to do it though is not to tell a child, it might seem obvious, but some people still tend to naturally make this mistake, you know, what's wrong with you? Everyone else is playing so nicely. Why are you so shamedic? Why are you so shy? It's not normal. You won't have any friends. And things like that. Very often we do it because we know a child is not going to like these comments and they're going to have to man up to be able to show that they could do it. Sometimes we, we, we use the child's vulnerability and their sensitivity to help them overcome that sensitivity. But we're hurting them in the process. If a child is very sensitive, don't make them feel ashamed in order to get them to overcome their shame. That's not the way to do it. To label a child as no good and make them identify as the shy one that's so immature and babyish. If it works, it wasn't the right way to make it work. And if it doesn't work, you're probably just making the problem bigger. If you could um, encourage a child, say, wow, you're a big girl, I know you could do it this time, and we're going to go to this event, you talk, you talk about it in advance, when it's not challenging, not when she's holding on to Tati's hand for your life. You say, we're going to go to this event, and if you play nicely with the kids, you're going to get a big incentive, you're going to get, get a prize for it, a treat for it. Not on her terms, on your terms. You decide what you want to give for it. And you make her feel like you know she could do it. And you add, and if you can't, it's okay. It's okay. You're not going to push and, and force and, and make a child do something that's hard for them. By the time they hear that you believe in them and don't see them as a problem, and they have an incentive that's going to make it encouraging for them, and they don't feel forced to do it, you know, very often that's, that's something that's very helpful. And the same is true that when you do have to um, go somewhere, do something, you tell a child in the right time, in the right way, that this is going to happen and you're willing to work with them. Tati and Mami have to go away for a week. We're not going to be home. Uh, where would you like to stay? No, I can't go anywhere. I understand you don't want to go anywhere, but we're not going to be here. You have time to think about it. You could choose. You have this choice. You have that choice. You have this incentive. You have that incentive. But you're letting a child know in advance that this is what it is. Not, what's wrong with you? Why can't we go? Don't, don't get challenging. I know we're talking about a five-year-old, but we don't realize sometimes how, how often we do challenge children, and especially if are dealing with a very sensitive child, even if it works, it's usually not the right approach. So being overprotective is usually not good. And knowing how to encourage and incentivize a child to do the right thing and push forward you know, with a good word is definitely very often helpful. And by the time you're clear that that's what you're dealing with and that's what has to be done, I would hope that you could bring out the best in a child and make them feel good about whatever they do, do. Even if they only accomplish a 30% first. And they don't play as much as you wanted them to, but they tried. And you make them feel good about it. Wow, amazing. Everyone loves playing with you. You're so mature. You're a big girl. You really yeah, just brings a better result as you go forward. So I'm just going to end off again by saying that I do think you might want to discuss this with somebody objective, whether it's a child's playgroup teacher or principal or whatever it is, just to make sure that they could help you understand if it's like a problem and it's out of bounds the way you see it or not. And just going back and, and summarizing, make sure that this doesn't become a chinuch shon bias issue. Um and avoid extremes of being either too protective or overprotective, but just make sure that you're getting an objective opinion about how to do it, and like I started off with, daven. Daven, especially with little kids, especially with kids overcoming their nature, especially with things that, there's, there's only so much you can do. So daven, daven to Hashem, that this child should feel more confident, and have a better, healthier self-esteem, and be more comfortable, and socialize properly, and daven, and believe in it. We don't daven when there's nothing else to do. We daven always. When there is something else to do, we do the something else, and when there isn't, we don't. But the davening is always there. People have a mistake of, oh, when there's nothing to do, you just daven. No, you daven always, and whatever you could do to help this child, you should do. And Mitzvah Shem, you and your husband should see nachas from her and from all your children. Let's see how